0: To episode 64 of the thinking lsat podcast in san francisco california i am nathan fox with me in washington dc is ben olson how was your uh, fourth of july Ben?
1: uh it was it was pretty good we had a lot of rain here so from what i understand they didn't do the fireworks so we ended up just going home but uh we did go to our little parade in town which was um actually i kind of liked it because we got there right when it finished so uh-huh. <laughs> didn't yeah. have to st- stand forever watching people play and then the firefighters had like some competition where they put a a keg up on this wire and they had to shoot it with their fire hoses and try to get it to go from one side to the other so you have like two teams of fire firefighters shooting their hoses at uh, this keg right and if they get it to the other side the opposing side then they win or whatever but um i think the idea is that in the summer when it's really really hot uh, everybody gets wet who's watching this event but since it was already starting to rain (laughs) yeah it was just more water and lots of water but it was it's pretty fun to see them shoot those hoses and accidentally spray everybody on the side so
0: cool um, I was at my buddy's house in Pacifica. Um, they have a Fourth of July party and uh, so you're gonna I'm a, I'm a little bit hung over today, Ben. You, you might have to carry more of the weight than you're accustomed to carrying on the show. Um, it was a, <laughs> it was a crazy It was a crazy <laughs> party. Uh, literally the cops came, but that's because in Pacifica the cops apparently like go door to door and warn everybody about illegal fireworks. Okay. Mm -hmm. Then at uh, a certain hour when it gets dark enough, everyone goes out into the streets and everyone shoots off illegal fireworks. I mean, it's just like they were 360 degrees all the way around for like an hour and a half. Just people (laughs) shooting shooting fireworks, including, and I don't know, maybe we (laughs) shouldn't put this on air, but I'm going to anyway. Um, One of my friends was definitely shooting fireworks out of his butt uh, in the middle of the street. And I took a video of it and everything.
1: So, yeah. Okay. (laughs) So what, what is the point of the cops going around telling everybody if everybody just flaunts that uh, recommendation? I
0: have no idea. I I looked up and there was just literally a uniformed police officer inside of the house. And it's, I guess they're just trying to warn everybody about it. But I mean, it's, you go outside and it's like pitch black at, and then there's just fireworks going off on every corner from every house. People are up on the roofs and like shooting off. I don't even know where they get them. Like the big ones that go up in the air and explode, yeah. you know. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. they're like your own like legit fireworks <laughs> yeah, right up
0: there. Totally. Yeah. And they're just like right in your face, you know. They're very impressive when they're when they're going off like uh, literally just <laughs> all around. Yeah. Um yeah, so it was uh it was quite quite a Quite a, a night. Um, today.
1: What, what time did you go to sleep?
0: You know, it wasn't that late. I think I went to. I think I went to sleep around like midnight or something. Or maybe oh. uh, it was probably one or something like that. I got up at eight, so I'm 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 okay. I got my cup of coffee. I'll uh, I'll be able to soldier through. It's a tough life, but I think I can make it. <laughs> um, today's show we have a bunch of listener emails, including one. Uh, about retaking from a 172. People probably would be surprised to hear that people uh, might retake the test when they get a 172, but we'll talk about that. We're also going to discuss this New York Times article called An Expensive Law Degree and No Place to Use It. And in the end of the show, we're going to do a passage, as promised, we're going to do a passage from the June 2007 uh, reading comprehension. That all sound okay, Ben? Sounds great. All right, here we go. So uh, I'm going to skim through a couple of these emails. Ben and Nathan, I just wanted to thank you for the hours of LSAT discussion through the podcast. I started with a 140 diagnostic in January of 2016. I've always thought of myself as a bad test taker and thought of quitting after such a miserable experience on my first try at the diagnostic. But I kept at it. I certainly see the value in grit as discussed on the last show. I listened to all your podcast episodes, did a prep course, uh, 7 Sage and the LSAT trainer, and completed about 35 full prep tests. I received a 160 on the June 2016 LSAT, which at one time seemed impossible. Your podcast did as much or more for me than the, uh, as the other prep materials. This score, coupled with my GPA, should be good enough for a full scholarship at my local law school." Just thought I'd share my story for the fledgling fledgling listener who may be thinking of quitting.
1: Keep up the good work, Matt. That's nice. Yeah. Yeah, a little rah-rah for anyone who's just getting started now.
0: Yeah. Um 140 to 160, it's uh it's impressive. It takes a lot of work, but that's also not a crazy amount of improvement. Um people think 140 as a diagnostic is horrible, but I don't I don't feel that way. Do you?
1: No, that's pretty normal. I would say most people get a diagnostic score at least when I see people starting the class between 140 and 155, that seems to be sort of the starting range. So, and there's definitely people below that and there's definitely people above that. <laughs> it's just all over the place. It's it's really after you've worked with the material for a while and start getting a sense of what's going on that you have to start worrying about scores.
0: Yeah, with people think of that first diagnostic as like Oh, well, this is going to tell me whether or not I should even pursue this. And that, that seems to be totally wrong to me. I mean, people improve by 20 points fairly routinely, um, you know, or more. And so even if you start in the 130s, I mean, that's not the that's not the end of the world. Um, hmm. Cool. All right. Well, Matt, thanks for riding. Congratulations. I hope you do get that full ride. That's awesome. Um, here's another email. We have a couple of these about retaking. So, Uh, This one says, I just got my June score back with a 172 and my expected undergraduate GPA will be around the 3.75 range. I'd most like to attend Stanford, Chicago, NYU, or Columbia, but I feel like I'm enough in the ballpark to also apply to Harvard and Yale and would consider either if accepted. Would it be worth a retake in September to try and score a few extra points, or should I stick with the score I already have and focus more on writing essays and securing good letters of recommendation? Uh, 172 was slightly below my practice average of 173, 174, but that may be a normal drop for official test-taking conditions. I'm fairly confident I could increase my score, but there's always a chance I miss the mark and my score actually decreases the next go round. Thanks, Zach. Uh,
1: What do you think about that? Short answer is yes. Uh, Zach should try to take it again. Um, And then based on the practice test scores that he's getting leading up to that test, decide whether or not he should withdraw. But uh, if he's retaking practice tests that he's seen before and scoring in the high, high 170s, then I would retake even though he's seen those tests before if he's scoring above 172 as he says he was uh on tests that he hasn't seen before i'd still retake because there's a good chance that he could go up uh since he went a little bit lower than his average and if he does that's a big boon but uh, if he goes down there's probably not going to be much of a consequence
0: yeah, it seems like nothing to lose other than you know um, uh, another couple months worth of studying and $175 to take the test and a wasted uh, Saturday. Why, why not? Um, he's demonstrated that he's capable of scoring higher than his score on record, even if it's just a couple points. I mean, if he was really averaging 173, 174, then that means he probably had a couple scores at least that were 175 or 176. Mm -hmm. already, I would imagine, um, if he was literally averaging 173, 174. So it probably isn't even going to take that much um, more prep, really, right? It's not like starting Mm -hmm. from scratch here. It's a little funny that he says, you know, should I, or should I stick with the score I already have and focus more on writing essays and securing good letters of recommendation? I don't, really think writing essays and securing letters of recommendation just takes that much effort.
1: Yeah, I agree. No.
0: And I also don't think it's like he's not going to need to study 20 hours a week for the LSAT here. He could do... What do you think? If he, I mean, if he did an hour a day, wouldn't we expect that his score would go up for, for September? Or at least have a pretty good chance?
1: For sure. I mean, the thing is, is when he takes a practice test or practice section, he's getting so few wrong that he doesn't have that many to review and even of the ones that he gets right that he wants to review they're they're not going to be that many so his prep is is uh going to be much easier than most people's i do think that writing the personal statement can take time because i think the best personal statements are ones in which people sit down and write them and then they get feedback and they write them again uh and each draft gets easier and easier because you're just making smaller and smaller changes but i do think uh if you put in the time to polish it and get feedback it can become better but he, he's a prime candidate for someone who can do both because like you're saying his lsat prep is not going to take that much time
0: yeah and the writing thing i mean the best way to do that is to like write a really terrible first draft put it away for a week come back to it you know do an edit put it away for a while. Come back to it send it out to people mm-hmm. that'll take time for them to get back to you yep. you know it's not like slaving every day on your uh, personal statement yeah it's yeah a, you want to drag you want to draw that out i think with a lot of breaks in between and then securing good letters i mean it might take some work to get back in touch with old professors or something like that but it's them writing the letter probably not you so shouldn't shouldn't be too time consuming i, I think you could do both side by side uh one One section a day, right? If he just did one timed section every day and reviewed uh, his mistakes
1: or whichever ones bothered him. For sure. And I I wouldn't be surprised to see him shoot for one and end up doing two on a lot of days just because he's like, Yeah, I can do another one. That one went well. You know? If he's got the time and, and if he really wants to work at it, right? Yeah.
0: If he's a workaholic, which we hope he is, if he's going down this uh, <laughs> this career path, workaholic is absolutely the best skill you can have. I think, uh, for if you want to be a lawyer, so yeah, cool. Um, yeah, good luck, Zach. You know, worst case scenario, if your practice test scores are still stuck at one seventy two by the time the September test rolls around, you just withdraw. So at the last minute, so no big deal. One thing I don't like in Zach's email, and I just have to make a note here. I can't let this kind of thing pass. Um, He says he scored a couple points lower and then, but that may be a normal drop for official test taking conditions. And I just don't want this to be a self-fulfilling prophecy for people that they think they get this expectation in their head that they're going to score lower on the actual day of the test. Mm-hmm. And that makes no sense to me. I, why do you? Why? Why is that out there in the world? I mean, I get it. You know, you could you could be nervous or whatever, but you could also be more focused on the day of the test because it's the one that actually counts. I know for me. I mean, I scored higher. I I never scored one seventy nine on a practice test. I I scored one seventy nine on the real thing, and that's. I just don't know. I I don't want people to, to like, expect that they're going to have a drop and then um, have a drop because they expect they're going to have a drop.
1: Yeah, I I agree completely. I mean, I think there's some prudence to planning for the worst and hoping for the best. But I think what you're saying is people are forgetting to hope for the best because that definitely can happen and not to assume that it won't happen.
0: Yeah, I mean, the way you... Right. So you get yourself as prepared as you can. You get your practice test scores up as high as you can. And sure, hopefully your practice test scores are higher than a score that will get you where you need to go. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's what planning for the worst is, you know, Just yep. getting, being over prepared. That's great. And the, another way you plan ahead is by having a backup, you know, starting early and having a, a backup date, uh, you know, planning to take the test. Again, if necessary. Mm -hmm. That all is, you know, of course, like plan for the worst, but no, I mean on your first attempt, the day, the day you actually sit for the real official test, I would be hoping that that's the only time you sit for the official test and you score at, or maybe even above your practice test average. And that's totally possible, right? (laughs) I mean, yeah, half the time you're going to score above your average and half the time you're going to score below your average. I just, Mm -hmm. I don't like it that people think there's this thing of like, oh yeah, well, everyone scores lower on the real test. That's not, that does not have to be true. So here's another uh, retaking-ish question. It says, this must've been um, an email to you, huh? Hi, uh, Hi, Ben. Just wanted to let you know, I did about five or six points better than I was practicing at. I scored a 166 on the June LSAT, which was pretty good for me. I think it was helpful that my experimental blah, 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 blah. Still considering taking it again, as I do think I could score better if I hammered on the logic games a bit more. Overall, pretty satisfied. Thank you for everything with a whole bunch of exclamation points. (laughs) Um, We got an appreciative student. So this student now scored five or six points better than his or her practice scores on the real thing. Yeah which is a lot, and and now, and now also, though, is asking about retaking. What do you think about this one?
1: So, in general, and this is going to be true for the vast majority of people, if you get five or six better than what you were practicing at, I mean, who knows what his, you know, the highest score he might have gotten while practicing, but five or six points better than what he apparently was averaging at, I would take that and run and don't tell anyone that (laughs) that's what happened. Yeah. Uh, but I happen to know that this student in particular was studying for a long time and, and took a while to move his score up to where he did and so he sort of does have the work ethic and the patience to pursue this and since this is June and he's looking at retaking it in September and if he did retake it in September he'd still be applying pretty early as long as he got his apps in before Thanksgiving. I don't think there's any problem in trying to shoot for something better but He'd have to be scoring higher than 166, which is already very high compared to his practice test scores, to even consider that. And so I might say, hey, look, if you want to put in the time and the effort, and since games was your biggest weakness and that's an easy section or an easier section to improve, go for it. But if you don't substantially overshoot that 166 consistently, I would just stop just withdraw and apply
0: yeah um, so it depends on I guess what the students goals are and what what he thinks his upside ultimately is I mean I'm I'm never like I never tell people not to try to improve and if he thinks yeah. he can do better that's awesome but um, yeah I mean if he's averaging 160 on his practice tests and he already has a 166 on record
1: mm-hmm
0: it is going to take some work to get that practice average up to 168 or whatever it would be that would justify him taking it again. Yeah. So by all means, give it a shot, but um, plan to just go ahead and withdraw if you don't make it. Yeah. Cool. He does say, I guess, that he's got, like, his games are still his weakest. Mm Mm-hmm. Which, you know, that's usually a, a pretty good opportunity to improve. So yeah, maybe maybe he could get there. You know, one other one other thing to say though is that this uh this game section I've looked at it a little bit. This game section was pretty easy.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um so, you know, people who if you did okay on this game section, that's that's great and you might encounter something a little tougher in September. We of course we can't predict, but it's possible, right? Yeah. All right, so this article, Ben, uh, in the New York Times, I guess we can't really um, read the whole thing, but it is called, again, An Expensive Law Degree and No Place to Use It uh, on the New York Times website. We'll, uh, we'll link to this in the show notes, but um, you want to sum it up maybe or what do we want to say about this?
1: Sure. I think the most important thing about this article is that if you're considering a lower-tiered law school, uh, a, a law school that has a pretty low ranking, probably in the 100s or even in the, the high uh, uh, 80s, 90s or something like that, um, or a law school that's not ranked at all, and that's true for um, several schools – Uh, I would stop and read this article because this article is all about Valparaiso, which is a law school that's just outside of Chicago. Uh, It walks through the history of what happened at Valparaiso and what's happening there now. And I think it's very illustrative of what's going to happen or what what has been happening at all – or at least a lot of the low-tier law schools. And so you can know with your eyes open what you're getting into. And at Valparaiso, what was the thing that happened? L- long story short is basically when law schools became pretty popular in the early 2000s, schools like Valparaiso, lower-ranked law schools, which were just teaching basic black-letter law, here's how to practice law, now go practice it. Uh, decided that they wanted to turn turn themselves into Harvard-esque schools. And so they started hiring expensive faculty, charging a lot more for tuition, not surprisingly, and then uh, creating a faculty that created research, not just teaching. And uh, that's great and all, but these low-tier schools are really not set up for that. And when people stopped going to law school, these law schools couldn't afford their expensive faculty and everything that comes with it. And so they had to make a tough decision. Should we uh, accept people with lower qualifications or should we reduce our class size and cut faculty? And a lot of them, not surprisingly, decided to admit students with lower qualifications, uh, lower LSAT scores, lower GPAs. And again, not surprisingly, the bar passage rate at Valparaiso, and I'm sure at a lot of these other low-tier law schools, dropped. And so basically what you have is you have students who are getting accepted to low-tier schools that they shouldn't even be going to. And now they're paying the school all this money, because remember these schools are charging a lot now, uh, Harvard-esque prices, and they are then graduating, not passing the bar, and they're loaded with debt, and they can't practice law. So you just need to read this story to sort of believe it. Uh, I think we've heard about this, we've even talked about it on the show before, but I think when you hear these conversations that the peop- the professors and the deans at, at Valparaiso were having, and you realize how real this is and the, the de- decisions that they were making, if you're going to a law school and they're saying, hey, come here, um, we'll give you $15,000 scholarship, well, that's exciting, you're still paying a lot of money for that school and are you going to end up not passing the bar because you're going to a school when you really should be not going to school or you should be working harder and pushing up your LSAT score to get into a school that can actually you know deliver I I don't know those those are the things that I would consider
0: yeah um, LSAT it it's uh lsat's a pretty good predictor of how you're going to do on the bar exam um it's not a perfect predictor but people who score you know let's say 155 or lower 150 or lower especially those people mm-hmm. um, are going to have a much harder time passing the bar than people who are able to get their lsat score up to 160 or higher um mm-hmm. it's just because a lot because you're English language abilities, right? I mean, it's a test of reading and writing and uh, the LSAT does a pretty good job of um, telling you how good you are at that sort of thing. So it it also has some information in this article. It mentions the fact that the uh, students with lower test scores and undergraduate grade point averages tend to subsidize the stars at these schools. It says it's especially yeah. true of third and fourth tier schools like Valparaiso. So what's going on there is that they have a Harvard sticker price, right? But that's not the price mm-hmm. that everyone pays that goes there. And in fact, at many schools, there'll be uh, more than half the class, even two thirds of the class, getting some scholarship help, somewhere between, you know, uh, $5,000 or all the way up to a full ride. And so. Yeah. Uh, you, you really got to think about that, that if you're going to actually pay sticker price, you're, you're paying for your education and potentially the people that are sitting next to you in the room. You're, you're sitting right next to somebody who outscored you on the LSAT, has better college grades than you, potentially. Uh, they're there for free because you're paying um, you know, for your education and for their education. And now you have to compete with them for grades, when when they already have a you know like better track record than you do so and yeah i mean and then ultimately if you you know you have a hard time competing in school and then you're also going to have a hard time competing on the bar exam and for jobs for the rest of your life
1: yeah i mean the irony is is just insane i mean you're going to school you're paying more for someone next to you who's paying less they're going to pass the bar you're less likely to pass the bar and now you leave law school with debt and no job prospects at least in a legal job requiring a bar yeah. <laughs> passage i mean it's just the the poor paying for the rich yeah in some twisted way. But that's, I mean, I don't know if that's fair or whatever, but that's the way it is. (laughs) We we can also
0: use this to our advantage, right? I mean, we could think about it from the other, (laughs) the other side, which is, let's say you get into a top 14 school or you get into a top, whatever, 50 school, and you're going to have to pay full price, or you get into a school like Valparaiso and they offer you a full ride. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I would say you're a, you're not gonna have any problem with the bar exam because you got a 160 or 165 on the LSAT or whatever. So you're, you know, just because you go to Valparaiso and Valparaiso has a low bar passage rate, doesn't mean that Valparaiso is gonna make you have a low bar passage rate, not when you're an overqualified candidate at that school. So- Oh no, for sure not. So you can go to that school, same thing for employment numbers, by the way, that, you know, you're gonna be a star there. So you're gonna be whatever their employment figures show you're gonna be expected to be better than that if you're there on a scholarship because you're kind of a you know big fish in a small pond at a place like that, and so yeah, I mean think about that. You go you go to Valparaiso instead, you take the full ride, then now you're you're being paid for by the people sitting next to you in class. You know you could say uh, say thanks um, when you come into class every day like hey thanks for buying me my JD and oh, by the way, you're better equipped to compete for grades and jobs and on the bar and everything else because Mm -hmm. you've got a 10-point higher LSAT score than everybody else that's in the room. Not that a 10-point higher LSAT score guarantees anything. You're still going to have to work your ass off, and there's still some randomness um, in law school grading. But I'd bet on you. I would bet on you if you had 10 points higher LSAT score. I would bet on you to to do better um, academically and on the bar and in the job market. So... It's uh, it can be a really good deal if you're the one getting the scholarship, but if you're not getting yeah. the scholarship, you got to realize that you know just because they say it's fifty thousand dollars doesn't mean it's actually worth fifty thousand dollars. Y- you very likely are subsidizing someone else. Yep. While we're on the topic, you mentioned the idea of you know if some if they give you a fifteen thousand dollars scholarship or whatever. Yeah. I've seen people show me all their offers like hey Nathan look at the you know here's the eight offers I'm trying to decide what to pick and all they have on their spreadsheet is just the dollar amount of the scholarship offer. Yeah. And that's ridiculous because you need to think about the price of the school minus the scholarship offer equals here's how much it's actually going to cost me. Yeah. You know, it's one step deeper. You know, you can write that Excel formula. And if you can't, you can do it on pencil and paper. But it's like, I mean, I could have a law school where I just make it... $400,000 a year, and I'll just give everybody a $350,000 scholarship. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's not, you know, you're not getting $350,000. You're going to pay me $50,000.
1: But wait, wait, the law school costs more, so it must be more valuable. (laughs) I know. It's so (laughs) ridiculous. It's so ridiculous.
0: I mean, it's just silly. It's like pricing is such a weird thing, huh? Like sales and stuff like that, but people actually think they're getting a deal. Uh, just because people yeah, jack up the prices and then give everybody 50% off. Woo, yay, all right. But no. Think about what it's going to actually cost you. You're going to have to pay that back someday. And you're, you're going to be very happy if you um, make a good, smart financial decision now. Uh, save your future self some
1: agony. Also, just a last note. If you're applying late and you're getting scholarship offers, but... They're not necessarily to the schools you want to go to, or they're to schools you want to go to, but they're not very big scholarship offers. I would consider applying early in the next cycle. I know a lot of people have applied recently um, for this coming cycle, and uh, I, I get the sense that people just want to get going to law school. But if you apply early uh, for a school to a school that you were getting scholarships off- offers at. I just can't imagine not giving you better ones when you're early in the cycle.
0: I could not agree more. It makes me ill when I hear people talking about sending in their applications now in July for this coming, for this September's uh, start date. Uh, Some schools are still taking applications, but that does not mean it's a good idea. I don't know why it's, you know, we've talked about this before, but the younger you are, the more you're in, you tend to be in a hurry to like, well, I've got to do this now, you know? I get yeah. like 25 year olds that are like really worrying because the clock is ticking and boy, I can't, you know, I got to do this now. I mean, I'm going to be, geez, I can't be in law school when I'm 30. And it's like, yes, you can. People go to law school when they're 30, 40. I mean, what, what difference does it make? And, you know, if you jump into law school now, all that is, is you're going to, you're one, one step closer to the day when you have to start paying your loans back. Yeah. Yeah, they get, you know, you get into some school and they give you some scholarship help. Uh if you applied late and you got some scholarship help, I mean I'd just love to see what would happen if you withdrew all your applications and reapplied before Thanksgiving for mm-hmm. next year. I've ha- I have never heard of any student doing that and not getting at least as good of offers than the next time around. Have you?
1: No, no, for sure. I mean, if they're applying early, they're going to get better offers.
0: Yeah, you're going to get better offers. And also, it's not like the schools are going to be mad at you, you know, like, oh, no, we admitted you last year and you're you're reapplying now. And oh, no, well, you know, they'll tell Mm -hmm. you they'll say it right. The the schools, they're so it's so shady, but the schools will be like, well, you know, we're going to have to reevaluate. We don't do deferrals and we're going to have to reevaluate your application next year. Um, Mm -hmm. We don't know. You know, it's different every year. We just don't know. It's like, come on. If they wanted you, if you applied late and they still wanted you, of course they're going to want you again next year. You're a customer. You're going to be paying them. Of course they mm-hmm. want you. If they were going to let you pay them now, why would they not let you pay them <laughs> a year from now? Yeah. I have never once heard of a student who like got into some school and then reapplied, you know, decided to wait, see if they could get better offers, reapplied earlier the next year. And then just didn't get into exactly that same school with better offers. And I mean, everybody does. So think about that if you are among the people that are trying to apply late. Cool. That article, again, it was called An Expensive Law Degree and No Place to Use It. And uh, we'll have that New York Times link in our show notes. Are we ready to do some reading comprehension? Yeah, let's do it. Cool. I'm excited about this. I think this is going to be very useful. So this is the June 2007 LSAT. You can uh, find that in Google very easily. And we're looking at section four. Yep. And we're going to do reading comprehension passage number one. And Ben, you want
1: to read? Sure. So as I'm reading through this, uh, I'm going to be focusing on trying to just understand what's being said. And uh, I'm going to pause, and Nathan and I will comment every now and then, uh, which is pretty reflective of what I think both of us would do when we're reading through a passage. Uh, It's not just like a straight shot. Oh, let's just read, 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 read. We're reading we're stopping, we're reacting to what's being said and then either pressing forward or maybe going back and just rereading a sentence or two to clarify some connection between what we're reading now and what we read before so that when we go into the questions, we're totally ready for anything that they throw at us.
0: Yeah, this is going to be active, engaged reading. We're not in any hurry to get to the questions. We need to make sure we grasp the passage, not, not memorize the passage, but we need to comprehend the passage. Um, and so however long that takes is how long that takes. And uh, yeah. then when we get to the questions, we actually end up going through the questions faster than we end up going through the passage, I would say, right? The wrong yeah. answers generally, four out of five answers are wrong. So we don't need to give all the wrong answers all that much attention, but we do have to give the passage um, our
1: full attention yeah
0: okay
1: all right so the first paragraph says for decades there has been a deep rift between poetry and fiction in the united states especially in academic settings graduate writing programs in universities for example train students as poets or as writers of fiction but almost never as both both poets and writers of fiction have tended to support this separation in large part because the current conventional wisdom holds that poetry should be elliptical and lyrical, reflecting interstates and processes of thought or feeling, whereas character and narrative events are the stock in trade of fiction. All right, so that was the first paragraph. I feel like it kind of made sense. There's been this divide between poetry and fiction, and people... Um, Seem to go along with it. Academics seem to go along with it because of this belief that there should be certain elements for poetry and certain elements for fiction, and they shouldn't overlap. But there are some things. There's some clues in here, right? Wouldn't you say, Nathan?
0: Yeah, I feel a but coming here, and that's that's my prediction here. Would be I'm I'm imagining why would they bring up this rift? And you know, also even the word rift has some like negative connotations to it. Yeah. So I write, I mean, I think in the first sentence I was already kind of feeling like, Oh, I bet you're going to tell me that this rift is closing or should be closed. Something like that. that would be, that would be my prediction. And I make that little prediction, not in order to be right. I make that prediction because if I, if I make the prediction, then I'm engaged and whether I'm right or wrong, Uh, I will know what the passage is about because I was actively thinking about what the passage was, I thought, going to say next.
1: Yeah, I agree that that first sentence is pretty crucial. By saying for decades, there has been a deep rift. The author is not telling us what he or she thinks. The author is telling us what other people seem to be doing. They seem to be separating poetry and fiction. So the author could agree with this, divide or disagree but if the author agreed with it the author would probably say poetry have and fiction have been separated for several years as they should ha- as they should be or something like that yeah, or mean, just we could be wrong but
0: yeah poetry and fiction uh are separated because
1: yeah you know mm-hmm. and
0: actually the the verb tense matters right to say are if you, when you say has been, that seems to indicate that something's going to change, maybe. Yeah. But if you just yep. say are poetry and fiction are separated because, yeah, then that's yep. like well, here's what the reality is, and it doesn't that doesn't like really seem to leave open opportunity for change. So yeah, all right, we're getting a little deep into it here, but I think we both at this point would be predicting, oh, you're you're probably going to tell me that this rift is closing or should close or something like that.
1: Sure. The second paragraph says certainly. It is true that poetry and fiction are distinct genres, but why have specialized education and literary to territoriality resulted from this distinction? The author is asking a question. Interesting. The answer lies perhaps in a widespread attitude in U.S. culture, which often casts a suspicious eye on the generalist. Those with knowledge and expertise in multiple areas risk charges of dilettantism, as if ability in one field is diluted or compromised by accomplishment in another.
0: Scary word there, dilettantism. Yeah. Many people are going to not understand that word, mm-hmm. but the LSAT then just tells you exactly what that word means, which is, um, ability in one field diluted or compromised by accomplishment in another. Yeah. They do that a lot on the LSAT where they'll put it, they'll give you a scary word and then just provide you with exact, like a definition of it or an example of it.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah.
0: So definitely don't need to panic. If you did not recognize that word, you absolutely should be able to get it from context. And, um, so what are they talking about here? They're saying it's like a Jack of all trades, master of none sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where, um, the author yeah it is interesting starts off with that question at the beginning of that paragraph and then answers it right why yeah. have poetry and fiction been separated oh mm-hmm. well there's this attitude in the us about hey if you know if you're going to be the jack of all trades then you're going to be master of none
1: yeah in terms of structure I would define the first paragraph as telling us what other people think, and then the second paragraph starts out with a concession by saying, certainly it is true that poetry and fiction are distinct genres, but, so the author is like conceding, yeah, they're different, but I have a question, why? Why are they, why this special, you know, why this big separation even though they are maybe a little bit different and by answering that question by explaining it with u.s culture this definitely suggests that the author is just still telling us what other people think and why this came about and the author probably disagrees with it
0: yeah i'm i'm still expecting um the but the the big but is going to come up here somewhere right the author is going to Why bring all this up if you're not going to say, eh, but here's how that's changing?
1: Yeah. (laughs) So the third paragraph says, fortunately, and that's a big word, it reveals a lot about what the author thinks, fortunately, there are signs that the bias against writers who cross generic boundaries is diminishing. Several recent writers are known and respected for their work in both genres. One important example of this trend is Rita Dove an African-American writer highly acclaimed for both her poetry and her fiction. A few years ago, speaking at a conference entitled Poets Who Write Fiction, Dove expressed gentle incredulity about the habit of segregating the genres. She had grown up reading and loving both fiction and poetry, she said, unaware of any purported danger, lurking in attempts to mix the two. She also studied for some time in Germany, where she observes... Poets write plays. Novelists compose. Liberty? How do you say that? Um, Libretti? Libretti? Uh, Yeah, I'm so bad at pronouncing things. But uh, libretti or something. Okay, anyways. Playwrights write novels. They would not understand our restrictiveness. I don't know what that word is, but it doesn't matter. The point is is people are doing different things. Yeah, I'm guessing
0: it's like an opera thing or something like that. But the point is, yeah, poets are doing plays and playwrights are writing novels and novelists are doing this whatever libretti thing. Sounds like opera to me. Mm-hmm. Um, got it. Yeah. Different people doing different stuff.
1: Okay. So this paragraph was what we anticipated. That's not always the case, but the author is saying, thankfully, this bias is going away. And then the author gives us this example of Rita Dove, yeah. who is someone who's excelling in doing both and people respect her. So that's evidence for the fact that the bias is going away. I
0: don't do any underlining or highlighting or anything like that at all when I read these passages. That's just my personal bias. Um, I, I don't find it necessary to do any or, or useful to do any underlining or highlighting or anything. Okay. But if I okay. was going to underline um, something, there's one word in that paragraph that I might underline. I mean, I think hmm. the most important word in the par- in the passage is is in that paragraph. Interesting. What would that word be? Well, I think fortunately, fortunately. Okay. Right. Cause it, whereas the first two paragraphs are the author just telling you how it is or how it has been
1: mm-hmm.
0: the mm-hmm. beginning, that first word, uh, fortunately at the top of the third paragraph gives the author's opinion very clearly. And that's what mm-hmm. we're looking for more than anything else, right? We're looking for the, what does the author think? Think. What's the author's agenda here? Why are you wasting my time with this? Well, this author wants to waste your time by telling you uh, that it's a good thing that writers are starting to cross these boundaries.
1: Yeah. I, uh, in general, I, in the past, especially, have not written much, but I've, I've started to write a little bit more as I've suggested it to other people in certain circumstances and found it helpful. But one thing I'm definitely doing is a lot less underlining than most people. And when I do underline, it's almost always after the fact. So I've read like a paragraph and then I'm thinking about what that paragraph was about or I've read half of the paragraph and I've stopped and I've thought about what it was saying. And I underline a word or two that I feel sort of captures what I'm thinking that paragraph is, but it's after the fact as opposed to reactive, as opposed to I'm reading through the sentences and I'm like, oh, this sounds important, better underline. Oh, this sounds important, better underline. No, it's like these are the words I want to remember so that when I look back at the passage as a whole, I can kind of see the structure in a few underlined words. Like, oh, that's where Rita Dove was we started hearing about Rita Dove, or whatever. Okay. Okay, next paragraph? Yep. So, it makes little sense, Dove believes, to persist in the restrictive approach to poetry and fiction prevalent in the U.S. because each genre shares in the nature of the other. Indeed, her poetry offers example after example of what can be only properly regarded as lyric narrative. Her use of language in these poems is undeniably lyrical. That is, it evokes emotion and interstates without requiring the reader to organize ideas or events in a particular linear structure. Yet, this lyric expression simultaneously presents the elements of a plot in such a way that the reader is led repeatedly to take account of clusters of narrative details within the lyric flow. (laughs) Okay, that's just a lot of stuff going on there, but bottom line, she's mixing the two, right? That's her mixing narrative and
0: plot into her poetry. Yep. At least, okay.
1: Yeah, line 42, her use of language in these poems. Okay. Okay, thus, while the language is lyrical, it often comes to constitute cumulatively a work of narrative fiction. Similarly, many passages in her fiction, though undeniably prose, achieve the status of lyric narrative through the use of poetic rhythms and elliptical expression. In short, Dove bridges the gap between poetry and fiction not only by writing in both genres, but also by fusing the the two genres within individual works. Cool. So
0: she's writing... um poetry that has elements of fiction. She's writing fiction that has elements of poetry. And Rita Dove is an awesome example of yeah. Main point time, right? Time time to make time to make our our summary here.
1: Yeah. Now, mistake number 1 I think that a lot of people make here is that they don't take the time to figure out what the main point is. The first question is almost always which one of the following is the main point of the passage. And they just go ahead and start answering that question by looking at the answer choices. But this is one where I'd stop and force myself to go back and think, okay, what is the main point? And I'm sort of kind of collecting my thoughts for the entire passage, which does take a little time. It's not like we're necessarily finding a single sentence, although that can happen. In the vast majority of cases, you're just thinking about the, the, all the paragraphs as a whole And sort of bringing them together into one idea. I don't. I
0: definitely don't look for one sentence in the passage. I, I think it's not. It's usually I think not that easy. It's not. They don't necessarily sum it up for you in one sentence anywhere in the passage, right? It's like I'm looking for the totality of the of the whole thing, and I'm gonna come up with my own thesis statement.
1: No, I, I definitely agree with that. I, I'm just thinking of there are a few passages that I have in mind where I'm reading along and I'm like, oh, it's a persuasive piece and this person is trying to prove this and they say it in a sentence. But it, in those cases, you you know pretty well, too, that that sentence is the main point. And so that's rare. It's, it's the opposite of, of uh, logical reasoning. We're in the vast majority of main point questions, it is a particular clause or sentence in the passage, right? whereas here it tends to be this summation, but sometimes it does happen, I guess.
0: The metaphor that I always use um, for what you're supposed to be doing on reading comprehension is, you know, imagine that you're a baby lawyer, newly minted lawyer, and um, you're in a very busy law office. Your boss comes storming down the hall and throws this document on your desk uh, and says, what is this? my office ten, 10 minutes tell me what this is and so now because they're busy and your job now is to read this and understand it and 10 minutes later you walk down the hallway and you go nervously knock on the door to your boss's office and you say hey um you wanted me to to read this for you and your boss says yep what is it and that's when you now say one sentence to your boss and you try to sum it up for them. Not every detail, you can't capture every single detail in one sentence that you're gonna tell your boss, but your boss wants to know why this document exists and what it is. And you are going to now tell them the main point. So what, what would you sum it up as here, Ben?
1: So for this one, I would say, there's been a deep rift between poetry and fiction. But fortunately, that seems to be going away, uh, as we've seen in the work of some respected poets and fiction writers, including Rita Dove.
0: Yeah, totally. Deep rift between fiction and poetry.
1: It's going away. Rita Dove's a good example. Yep. And so mistake number one is that people don't take the time to force themselves. It does take a little willpower here to force yourself to to come up with that main point on your own in your head as opposed to reading five answer choices and saying, Yeah, that one sounds good. The second mistake that I think people make here is one we might see in this particular passage because they spent more than half of the passage, or at least half, talking about read a dove. And so I think some people finish this and they say, Oh, this passage is all about read a dove. Right. And they're not they're not noticing the bigger picture here. She's an example for this change that is ultimately what this passage is about. This person didn't sit down just to write about Rita Dove and to say she's a great writer.
0: No, it starts off with this problem, right? According to the author, there's this problem, this rift, and these generic boundaries. And fortunately, in line 21, fortunately, this is changing. Mm -hmm. And then Line 24, one important example of the trend is Rita Dove, and it spends the entire rest of the passage, more than half of the passage, talking about Rita Dove, but Rita Dove is only an example of how these uh, genres are starting to
1: overlap. Yeah, so to be sure, she's a very important example. That's why they talk about her so much. So I would expect her to be part of the correct answer and what's the main point, but it's not going to be the main point alone.
0: No, it's not Rita Dove is great. Yeah. It's not even Rita Dove is crossing these boundaries. Yes. Yeah. It's the rift is closing and that's a good thing and Rita Dove's an example. Yeah. Okay.
1: All right, so question one. Which one of the following most accurately expresses the main point of the passage? Answer choice A, Rita Dove's work has been widely acclaimed primarily because of the lyrical elements she has introduced into her fiction. What do you think?
0: I hate it. Um, It doesn't say anything about the Rift overall closing. It is too specifically focused on Rita Dove's work. Read Dove yep. being acclaimed, that's not the point. The point is the rift is closing, read Dove is an example. I also hate with A that it's only talking about her introducing lyrical elements into her fiction and nothing yeah. about her introducing like narrative and plot into her poetry. Yeah. So A is like half and half again, you know, it's just not it's it's like one quarter of the correct answer.
1: Yeah. I would say most wrong answers and main point questions in reading comp are either too narrow or factually inaccurate, and this seems to have a little bit of both. It's really narrow, and by saying she has been widely acclaimed primarily yeah. because of this half that you're pointing out, it's like, eh, I don't even think that's accurate. So this one's out for both of those
0: reasons. Yeah, actually, does it, does it ever even say, I mean, we know that she's been highly acclaimed for her poetry and her fiction, but is she highly acclaimed because she blends those genres or is that just she happens to blend those genres and maybe she's highly acclaimed because of she has famous parents or, you know, she paid somebody off or who knows? Like, we don't really know why she is um, widely acclaimed.
1: Yeah. And even if she was acclaimed for those reasons, by adding that word primarily, all of a sudden you start saying, well, is that the main one or is there Yeah, others? It's just bad. That's bad,
0: bad. A, suck it, A. You're gone.
1: (laughs) If you picked A? I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay, B, Rita Dove's lyric narratives present clusters of narrative detail in order to create a cumulative narrative without requiring the reader to interpret it in a linear manner.
0: (sighs) I mean, it said that. That was somewhere in the passage, but that's certainly not the main point.
1: Yes, this is an example of something where it's probably true, but too narrow. Yeah. So A is out, B is out, Really C. important
0: there, by the way. You know, it's like we can get past B so quickly because we just know what we're looking for. My response to B would just be, not what I'm looking for. I know what yep. I want.
1: B is not it. I would read that and go, next. Yeah. Cool. C, working against a bias that has long been dominant in the U.S. Hmm. So far, so good. Yeah. Recent writers like Rita Dove have shown that the lyrical use of language can effectively enhance narrative fiction. Mm. Mm. Wah wah. Yeah. You know, like it started it off narrow. promising.
0: Mm-hmm. I liked it. You liked it, right? Working against a bias yeah. that has long been dominant. And it was like, oh, Rita Dove is an example of how this gap is changing. That's what I wanted it to say. Instead, yeah. it says recent writers like Rita Dove. Again it's a it's that halfway thing right where it's lyric so she's using lyrical language in her narrative fiction yeah but what about using the fiction tools inside of the poetry
1: yeah so seems halfway i don't know i don't like it nope neither do i okay c is out d unlike many of her u.s contemporaries This is a little strange. Mm -hmm. I don't remember her being directly compared to them, although she is different, so let's keep going. Rita Dove writes, without relying on the traditional techniques associated with poetry and fiction. (sighs) Yeah, this is, even if this is true, this is not the main point of the passage.
0: Yeah, I actually don't even think it's true. I mean, that seems like, that feels like made up.
1: Yeah, I don't remember talking about the tr- traditional techniques. I was just giving it the benefit of the doubt, which is a bad thing to do. But in the sense that, oh, maybe by doing this weird or this new thing by mixing the things, she's not traditional. And I just did that solely so I could say, well, even if it is true, it it's still matter. not
0: the main point. Yeah, does, yeah, does it's not, not match about the riff. Good. Yeah, does not match our prediction. Not what we're looking for. And I think we have other reasons to believe that it's uh, maybe just made up. I mean, it, it never said that, like, she doesn't use um, plot in her fiction. Yeah. Right? So, yeah, uh, yeah I no, hate it. Okay. How about e? yeah.
1: I hope it's E. E. Rita Dove's successful blending of poetry and fiction exemplifies the recent trend away from the rigid separation of the two genres that has long been prevalent in the U.S., this is exactly what we said it's she's an example she exemplifies this trend away from the rigid separation and although um this answer choice doesn't say oh this thing is a good thing outright by saying successful and by saying rigid it's kind of implying that this is a good trend um Oh, yeah. It doesn't have E, does
0: not contain the editorialization that we were looking for, which is like the rift closing is a good thing. Still, yeah, mm-hmm. you're right. It, the connotation there, rigid, is kind of a negative word, right? So, and it's a trend, recent trend away from this rigid separation. And she's an example. Perfect. A, B, C, and D all suck anyway. And mm-hmm. E is almost exactly what we predicted. So, pretty easy there to pick E. Cool. Hey, can I um just I'm not picking on you, but you said one thing there that I feel like um is worth comment. You you said
1: yeah, I know what you're gonna say.
0: <laughs> you wanna <laughs> you wanna say it?
1: Oh no, it's fine. It's about e, right? I said I hope it's e.
0: Yeah, what's wrong with that?
1: Well, uh, yeah, because if e sucks, we should not be wedded to it in any way, shape, or form. And go back and figure out where we messed up.
0: It's hard not to do that. And I I think I probably do the same thing where it's like, well, I hated A, hated B, hated C, hated D. Like, I better not hate E. But I think it's important that you read all five answer choices with kind of the same level of uh, skepticism. Yeah, Because it could have been a b c d here i mean we could have read it wrong or you know maybe maybe all five answers just suck and we that happens on the lsat a lot right yeah. where there'll be it happens a lot on like strengthen questions where um one of the one of the answer choices just tangentially barely strengthens the argument and all the other ones are terrible and yeah. It could have been A that barely strengthened the argument, but we read it as like, I don't know, you misread it or you don't quite catch that it how it strengthens the argument. Or you, you notice that it barely strengthens the argument, so you're just like, nah, there'll be something better. And yeah. then you get down to E, and um, it's, it's very tempting to just convince yourself, like sell it to yourself because you're in a hurry, and you just yeah. sell it to yourself like, oh, well, yeah, it's got to be this one. Because it wasn't any of the earlier ones. My guess would be that E is going to be one of the... I think there's probably, it's more commonly chosen incorrectly for that reason, because I think I've seen people do that a lot.
1: Yeah, and I've also seen people choose E without even reading it. Exactly. It's just, like, not good at all. No, so. disaster,
0: disaster. I mean, we, we do not need to really read every word of all the answer choices, but we absolutely do have to read every word of whatever answer we're going to pick. Yep. there. I would never in a million years pick E. Like, oh, it wasn't A, B, C, or D, and I know that 100%, so I'm just picking E without even reading
1: it? No way. That is not what I'm doing. Yep. Okay, cool. Cool. So question two, um, which one of the following is most analogous to the literary achievements that the author attributes to Dove? Okay, so this is an analogy question, uh, which is not a super common I mean, question and reading comp, it definitely does happen, but it's not as common as the inference questions or must be true questions. That said, it is a hard one. A lot of people tend to get these analogy questions wrong, and I tend to find myself telling people stop before you go into the answer choices, just like we did for main point questions, and figure out what it is you're trying to make an analogy to. You have to get that clear in your mind, otherwise. You're, not get, you're going to get totally lost in the analogies, which are totally different subject matters. Yeah, so. Yeah. the
0: literary... Achie- so we're finding an analogy to mm-hmm. the literary achievements that the author has attributed to Dove. So yep. first question, and absolutely not in the answer choices. I mean, cover up the answer choices if you have to, because they're just not going to make it easier for you. Um, what were those literary... Achievements that the author attributed to Dove. Why Why was Dove brought up in the first place?
1: She was brought up because she has successfully mer- done two things. One, she's succeeded in poetry and fiction, and she's succeeded in mixing them.
0: Absolutely. So, yeah,
1: two different things,
0: and she has successfully blended them together. So she made the peanut butter and jelly sandwich, right? She made a peanut butter yep. sandwich. It was delicious. She made a jelly sandwich. That was delicious too. And then she put <laughs> peanut butter on her jelly sandwich and she put jelly on
1: her peanut butter sandwich. The, the correct answer better not have to do with peanut butter and jelly. Or are you going to be outed for looking ahead? That'd be awesome. If it did, I'm going to have to have a peanut <laughs> butter a and point. jelly sandwich for lunch. Yeah. Yeah. Uh cool. Um yeah, exactly. That's perfect. You just came up with your own analogy too. So that means you understand exactly what was happening. So whatever analogy they throw at us, we can judge it. Exactly, because if
0: it it has got to be as good as my peanut butter and jelly analogy. It's not that it's actually I think a pretty important skill. I mean, I I would I do I do that on the test. Um there, I know that I'm gonna to have to find an analogy. I, if I can make my own, then I, yeah, of course, it's, I'm not gonna exactly predict the correct answer is not going to say peanut butter and jelly, but it gives me an idea of what I'm looking for. Like, I know the feel of it, right? You can almost yeah. feel that like click, right? As soon as I start talking about the peanut butter and jelly, it's like, oh, yeah, that's what we're talking about, that's what we're looking for. So, yeah. something like that, you know, and. There could be a zillion other um, analogies, but we'll find one that matches uh, the peanut butter and jelly one.
1: I do the same thing with uh, parallel reasoning. Exactly, yeah, I I almost said that. Yeah,
0: totally. Yeah, cool. Like, yeah, which but so just to make clear what we're talking about, um, there'll be a parallel reasoning question. You know you're going to have to find a matching pattern. So the first thing you do maybe is before you even look at the answer choices, you make up your own example uh, in your head. You know, oh, I'm looking for basically... If x, then y. If y, then z. Therefore, if not z, then not x. Right? That like because you you've you've like abstracted the main argument Mm to come up with your own example of what you're looking for. Then go find an answer choice that not only matches the given argument but it also matches your sample
1: argument that you made up. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Cool. So answer choice A says a chef combines non-traditional cooking methods. And traditional ingredients from disparate world cuisines to devise new recipes. No. Yeah, I agree. There's a lot going on here. I, I, I don't know that I would actually cross this one out as confidently as you have, because we have like two different things being combined together. Yeah. I think I would read it and be suspicious. Um, and just leave it open, but not like it in the back of my mind? Yeah. I mean,
0: I want to love it, you know? So I, I and, and I have an 80% chance of being right when I say it's probably not the answer. Yeah. But what I don't like is that it's blending meth, meth non traditional methods. Did, did
1: with, you say meth?
0: Yeah. <laughs> it's <laughs> blending non traditional methods with traditional ingredients. I would like it a lot better if it was blending, um, non-traditional methods with traditional methods or non-traditional ingredients with traditional ingredients. Yeah. I feel like it's overcomplicated because it's blending methods with uh, ingredients. I don't know.
1: I agree. I think my only hesitation here is that that third paragraph, what was it? No, was it third or fourth? The fourth paragraph, when the author was talking about how Dove mixes these two together, how she mixes narrative into her poems and, the lyrical stuff into her narrative. I kind of zoned out a little bit. It's not that I wasn't paying attention, but I was kinda like, yeah, okay. Like we're mixing these things together. And it's not like it's a hundred percent clear in my mind. Mm. So I think I would leave A open with a chip on my shoulder. It sounds like you would probably cross it out. And I'm not saying either one is right or wrong. um, but that's my that's my hesitation as I'm like maybe it was like maybe it was the narrative methods with the lyrical ingredients I don't know yeah. but let me go look and see if there's something that's more obviously correct if not then I'll come back and think about it but I don't want to spend a lot of time other than hmm, maybe
0: yeah I I probably would have crossed it off but I frequently will cross off all five I mean that happens um, to me kind of a lot because I have high standards yeah. for the answers and so I'm not afraid of just being like nope 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 nope, nope, and then go, oh, whoops, well, (laughs) I guess i got to lower my standards a little bit and reread them again. Um, So it's fine. However you want to do it is fine, but I don't think A is going to turn out to be the
1: answer. Okay. So B, professor of film studies, becomes a film director and succeeds partly due to a wealth of theoretical knowledge of filmmaking?
0: Bad, bad answer.
1: (laughs) I don't know where that's coming from. A is a lot better
0: than B. B doesn't even have anything in there about blending genres right and that's the ultimate thing we're trying to match here is the blending we
1: have to have the blending or else we can't pick it yeah so B's out C an actor who is also a theatrical director teams up with a public health agency to use street theater to inform the public about health matters I just have no like these are two a person with an agency this doesn't I mean, they would have to be
0: doing theater inside of the public health clinic, and they'd also have to be doing public health clinic things inside the theater, right? And I don't (laughs) think that's what's happening here. This is like, this is people teaming up and doing what they're good at to help benefit each other, but it's not a blending of genres at all. It's no way.
1: Yeah. C is out. D. D. The choreographer defies convention and choreographs dances that combine elements of both ballet and jazz dance. Wow, this is great. By defying convention, Dove is going against the rift. Um, She then creates poetry and novels that have elements of both, just like this person is choreographing dances that combine elements of both ballet and jazz. I like this a lot better than A, and it makes sense. So I would yeah. keep this one open.
0: I mean, it's going to be the answer. It even adds in the thing about defying convention, which was part of why Dove was special, right? That she's yeah. she's doing this new thing and, and helping to close this rift that has existed. Um, D's better than my peanut butter and jelly example, right? Because peanut butter and jelly, you're not uh, defying any convention or closing any rift, actually.
1: Uh, <laughs> maybe we have to assume that you did that in another country, maybe, but you yeah. don't peanut butter and jelly yeah good point all right e a rock musician records several songs from previous decades but introduces extended guitar solos into each one (laughs) bitchin cool yeah that's different though um not mixing genres pick d and move on i probably um would have crossed out a once i read d Um, But before I read E, because I had a chip on my shoulder, I I do this a lot. So maybe we approach the the answer choices in a slightly different way. You might be crossing out more of them than I am. But what I'll do is I'll have like this sort of idea in the back of my mind that I didn't like that answer. And as soon as I find one that's better, even if that answer doesn't end up being correct, I'll go back and cross out the other one because I'm like, well, it's not going to be that one if this one is still around.
0: Yeah, D, because D is our favorite when we read D. Sure, mm-hmm. if A wasn't already eliminated, it would make sense to just go ahead and eliminate it. Yeah,
1: and then sometimes I might read E and then be like, oh, wow, this is even better, and then I pick E. But So that's how that's how I find myself going through these sometimes. Okay, anyway. number two, D. D, okay, three. According to the passage, in the U.S., there is a widely held view that. Now, when it says according to the passage, that means... Literally, almost literally, if not literally, stated in the passage. So the yep. passage said this, go find it. Yep, it's a must-be-true question.
0: Which one of the following must be true according to the passage? Which one was stated in the passage? I would make a prediction.
1: Oh, you would? Yeah. Okay. Oh, oh yeah, I, I take it back because it does say here... In the US, there is a widely held view of that, like, we have some clue, right? As opposed to just what was said in the passage. Right.
0: It's not just which of the following must be true according to the passage, it's which one of the following must be true about the US, a widely held view in the US. Yeah. And I, re- yeah. I just remembered there was that whole thing because our discussion about dilettantism, right? There's a mm-hmm. widely held view in the U.S. Um, that you shouldn't be jack of all trades, master of none. It says it um, in line. Widespread attitude, line 15. Um, there is a widespread attitude in U.S. culture, which often casts a suspicious eye on the generalist. So that would be fine if that were if that were one of the answer choices. That would be a great answer because it says it.
1: Yeah. Okay. Answer choice A. Poetry should not involve characters or narratives. So this answer actually doesn't seem inconsistent with the passage, but it's not what we just predicted.
0: Yeah. I mean, I maybe would be able to keep it open just because it is kind of what the passage was about. It's it's at least it has this idea that you shouldn't, you should not blend the two. Yeah. Right. I don't love it but there was the rift right it talked about the rift and for for decades or whatever there's been this rift between poetry and fiction Eh, i don't hate a i'd be looking for something uh, something better
1: yeah i I think i would have the exact same experience that i had with question two i'd i'd have a chip on my shoulder for a because i'm like was this literally said or is am i just kind of deducing this from the context and everything else. Uh, we could go back and try to figure that out, but I think it's faster to go look at the others and see why they might be wrong or why there might be another one like D before that was correct and then just pick it.
0: Yeah, I don't have to love whatever answer I pick. I just have to pick the best answer. So I can get there two ways. I can either, like for number two, I definitely loved the correct answer. Mm-hmm. Um, but for number three, if, it, if I can hate B, C, D, and E, then I can pick A even though I had some
1: skepticism or love one of these yeah
0: or yeah ideally both right ideally yeah. i will find the one that i love and i will also hate all others um sure. but if that's you know sometimes you just have to take the best of a bad lot and so if we we always have two ways potentially to get there yeah okay cool
1: b Unlike the writing of poetry, the writing of fiction is rarely an academically serious endeavor. I, this, huh. was nev- this was never said. Yeah. They, they never said one was better than the other or worse no. or whatever. No. They just said they're separate. So sure. B is out. C, graduate writing programs focus on poetry to the exclusion of fiction. Okay. So at first glance, I was like, well, well, like they kind of do, but no. Uh, you have graduate writing programs that do exclusively poetry and you have graduate writing programs that do exclusively fiction. So this is kind of inaccurate in that sense. They don't exclude fiction. And and then the other problem is, is this a widely held view in the U S that graduate writing programs do this or do people even know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We have no idea um, whether
0: the U S has any widely held view about graduate writing programs. Do they,
1: yeah. Do they even know they exist? We don't know. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. D So C's out. Yeah. D, fiction is most aesthetically effective when it incorporates lyrical elements. I don't like that word most. Um, I don't remember this being talked about, but the idea that it's most aesthetically effective, we never talked about anything being more effective than anything else.
0: Yeah, D just is a pretty classic like overstepping, right? Mm-hmm. This is a must-be-true question, and D is a very uh, representative wrong answer for must-be-true questions in the fact that it just takes it a step too far. I mean, this author likes the idea that the two genres are starting to blend,
1: but -hmm. the
0: author never said that this is the most aesthetically effective thing.
1: Yeah. Uh, E, European literary cultures are suspicious of generalists. No, not European, uh, American. Yeah, so E is exactly the opposite,
0: of what um, the passage said about European literary cultures, at least in Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, furthermore, it never said anything about a widely held view in the U S about European literary cultures. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Americans don't even know that Europe exists, right? So
1: Yeah, so I think at this point I would go back and I'd pick A, but just for now I'm curious where this was actually set because this was according to the passage.
0: Yeah. um, Line 37 maybe? Restrictive approach to poetry and fiction prevalent in the U.S. Ooh. Prevalent in the U.S. is close to widespread view, widely held view. Yeah. Um. I don't know it. Yeah, I don't know. It's just the best answer, you know. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it's okay. Like B, C, D, and E, all were we we can conclusively get rid of B, C, D, and E. So a we don't maybe love it um do i mean is there a widely held view in the u.s about poetry period i don't know do most americans do you think have a widely held view about poetry i don't know but it does say that there's this deep rift and it does say that there's this prevalent restrictive approach and a is close enough
1: yeah okay Cool. So four, the author's attitude toward the deep rift between poetry and fiction in the US can be most accurately described as one of Well, the the author this this is definitely one to predict. The author's attitude toward the deep rift was negative, right? This yeah. is not a good thing. Thumbs
0: down. I'm holding up my thumb thumbs down in the air. Yeah. I would make my class, you know, if we were doing this one in class, I would actually ask the class to do thumbs up or thumbs down on on number four. Um, okay Because I, I think you have to Boy if you didn't get If you didn't get that <laughs> You're in trouble right If you don't mm-hmm. know that the author uh, Dislikes the rift Then you just did not comprehend the passage
1: Yeah Okay
0: Well there, there's going to be questions I mean that's the author's at- You have to know the author's attitude toward the rift <laughs> It's just really important That word fortunately yeah. did
1: a lot in the, the vast majority of cases are either the author's attitude is good or bad. There are some cases where the author is sort of very silent on the issue. And in those cases, I think the answer tends to be still positive uh, in general. I mean, it depends on the, the topic, but uh, a lot of times when the author doesn't seem to say anything obvious about a particular thing, if that thing is the main topic of the passage, the author... Probably has a good view towards it. Otherwise, why is the author talking about it?
0: Yeah, um, but it it could be like um, I know what you're talking about. You're talking about those answer choices where it describes the author's attitude as one of like academic remove or
1: something like that,
0: where it's, it's yeah, uh, like, like a,
1: tacit approval or something like a, right, that.
0: Right, right, right. Yeah here i think it's clearly thumbs down not like the author hates the rift and you know hates anyone who thinks the rift should (laughs) exist or anything like that Um, yeah but the author definitely editorialized enough to to let us know that the author does not like this rift the author thinks the rift should go away or that it's a good thing that people are starting to blend the two
1: yeah So answer choice A, so what is the author's attitude? Is it, A, a perplexity as to what could have led to the development of such a rift? No, because, I mean,
0: the author does ask the question, weirdly, right? That's kind of a strange Mm -hmm. rhetorical flourish there. Um, The author asks what could have led to the rift, but then provides an answer, which was the U.S. um, caution about dilettantism. So, I think the author actually is not perplexed. The author gave us a reason um, for the Rift.
1: Yeah. B, uh, astonishment that academics have overlooked the existence of the Rift. Uh, I don't think that they have overlooked it. I think they have actually supported it. So this doesn't make sense. Yeah, right. Exactly. No. Okay. C, ambivalence. I already think this is wrong, but let's read it. Ambivalence toward the effect the Rift has had on U.S. literature.
0: Um, No, the author is negative toward the Rift generally, so that's
1: not ambivalence. Yeah. Um, Pessimism. This is D, sorry. Pessimism regarding the possibility that the Rift can be overcome. Uh, No, I think the author is saying the Rift is being overcome as exemplified by Rita Dove. So this seems wrong as well.
0: Yeah, the author is, if you didn't read D closely enough, um, you could easily pick it, you know, pessimism about the rift. Oh, Mm -hmm. okay. But that's not what that says. It says pessimism Mm -hmm. about the possibility that the rift can be overcome. And actually, I think the author is optimistic about the possibility that the rift can be overcome, right? The author says the rift is currently being overcome by the likes of Rita Dove so yeah d's d's exactly opposite i think
1: yeah so now i'm gonna read e without hoping that it's correct <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> disapproval of attitudes and presuppositions underlying the rift yep the author does not agree with them thinks that they're too rigid and old school yeah exactly um
0: Ne- negative. E is negative about the rift. We knew the author was negative about the rift. That's that's our answer.
1: Cool. Five. In the passage, the author conjectures that a cause of the deep rift between fiction and poetry in the United States may be that. Now, this is what oh, I mean. I'm already I'm trying to finish this sentence as as I'm reading it. This is what you were talking about, the jack of all trades, right? This is what the author how the an- author answered. Is or her own question?
0: Yeah, uh-huh. that's exactly right. U.S. Uh, fears about dilettantism. Uh, we don't like jacks of all trades. Apparently, I mean, I didn't know that. You know, I don't. I didn't think that going in, but that's what the author said. Um, by the way, you know, <laughs> that's number five in the passage. The author conjectures that. Um, do we need to get worried about that word conjectures? No. No. I think it means says. Yeah. <laughs> right. In the in the passage the author says that a cause of a deep rift, of the deep rift may have been what?
1: Yeah. The yeah, Jack Paul Trade. It's cool. So, yeah. I, just to, if it's not obvious yet, I would like to point out that we are predicting the vast majority of these questions. Of course. I mean, that's how you go fast on the
0: on the reading comprehension. You you comprehended it. You got it. You understand what's there. You know, when your boss is like firing questions at you about the passage that you just read, you're going to have to be able to come up with an answer and you're not going to be rereading the passage every time. You understood what was in the passage. You got the main idea and they ask, you know, they just ask you what was in there. Hey, well why did what why did this rift your your boss is asking you, you know? Hey, why did the rift happen then? And you're like, "Oh yeah, yeah well there was a reason in there about u.s fears about jack of all trades
1: yeah uh so one we understood the passage and we're we're reacting to the question but the other thing here is that we're also we're we're coming up with these answers before we read answer choice a absolutely i think that's that's just a a reoccurring theme right like people they read the question and they just don't take five seconds that's it 10 seconds just think about it and they're like okay let's see a post picture oh no no me. that doesn't sound good yeah Uh, it's we're we're predicting for speed and just for accuracy right
0: yeah we don't we don't fall into traps we don't get distracted and confused because we're doing the test on a higher plane right we're we're telling them what the answer is going to be yeah and and then we have high standards like we i'm i'm going to give them a better version you know here's what i want the answer really to say and yeah. then when i look in the answer choices i'm I, i'm frequently like i did on number four i'm frequently like well all right that one's okay you know we'll take that one i mean it's the credited answer the other four suck yeah. this is definitely yeah. the answer or maybe it was on number three three what number three we picked the best of a bad lot right but yeah um yeah there's that's exactly it's funny students are just they love the answer choices they want to get into the answer choices that's where the answer is i'm gonna go find it i'm gonna go find the answer no 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 you tell
1: them what the answer is then you go find the answer yeah cool um so answer choice a poets and fiction writers each tend to see their craft as superior to the other's craft this is not the cause that they talked about the superiority probably true in real life yeah did not say that in the passage though yep that's not the answer is the jack of all all trades issue yes so b the methods used in training graduate students in poetry are different from those used in training graduate students in other literary fields Mm. methods
0: yeah one it didn't maybe say that huh but anyway all that would not be an explanation of why the rift existed in the first place yeah right that would be like reinforcing the rift but that's not a cause in the first place so it's not b
1: yeah c publishers often pressure writers to concentrate on what they do best
0: didn't say that no i don't remember them mentioning publishers they might have but i don't remember them anything about publisher pressure i don't remember that i don't think that's the answer
1: I think what you said about A is true for all of these so far is that there are things that seem very likely to be true in the real world. And so they're hoping people pick them and say, oh, yeah, yeah, that's it. That explains it.
0: it, Man, you just have to approach these questions as if there must be truths. It's like, which one do you have the evidence for? Remember Mm -hmm. what they're testing here. They're testing your reading comprehension. So it's going to be something that was just stated in the passage. It either said it or it didn't say it. It's not about yeah. what you think is true in real life here or what you want to be true or something that fits the pattern. It's not that's not what we're looking for. We're looking for the one that the passage said.
1: Yeah. Okay, yeah. how about D? D, a suspicion of generalism deters writers from dividing their energies between the two genres. A suspicion a suspicion of generalism. They actually use that word, the generalist. I can't remember where it was exactly, but Oh, uh line 17. I think this is really good.
0: Yeah, it was definitely in the second paragraph. The second paragraph is where the author like asked that question and then answered it. Mhm. Uh and yeah, oh yep, line 17, you're right. Suspicious eye on the generalist and D, suspicion of generalism. Boy, hard to get better than that.
1: Yeah. So, keep D open. E, fiction is more widely read and respected than poetry. <laughs> Probably again true. that's probably true yeah <laughs> did not say that though number five d yeah okay cool six in the context of the passage the author prime the author's primary purpose in mentioning dove's experience in germany is to again let's try to predict this what would you say the author's primary purpose in other words why did the author mention dove's experience in germany um it
0: it was almost in passing it was so it's not like the main point about dove or anything like that
1: yeah yeah but
0: the author was you know remember the author's main idea is the rift is closing that's a good that's a good thing and i'm going to talk about this example read a dove yeah and then dove's experience in germany how does that service the main point well dove what happened in, in germany she she went there she noticed that everybody was doing all different um, genre crossing. Yeah, that's not where she first heard about that because she she never knew that there was any such thing as the rift anyway. Right? She always wanted the the blending to happen. It was like natural yeah. to her.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: It said she was incredulous that the rift even existed. Yeah. Because she had never separated the two, and because her time in germany she saw people doing this all the
1: time. Mhm. Okay. So it seems like the author mentioned her experience to at the very least tell like help us understand Dove a little bit more and Sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. why she's doing what she's doing something like that. Yeah. So A. She the author mentioned Dove's experience in Germany to suggest that the habit of treating poetry and fiction as non-overlapping domains is characteristic of English-speaking societies but not others? Uh, that seems a little out there to talk about English-speaking societies. I think we were talking about the U.S. What about England? Yeah, England and Canada. And I mean,
0: I get it. Germany is not an English-speaking society and they were had all sorts of blending yeah. Fred, what about Spain? Spain's not an English-speaking society. We have no idea whether in Spain they are or are not blending. No. I, I, it's, it's just not about that, right? English-speaking, What the language that you're using was not even relevant to this.
1: No. No, I, I don't like this one enough that I would just cross it out. So this, is, this has gone beyond liking. Yeah. Yeah. B, uh, point to an experience that reinforced Dove's conviction that poetry and fiction should not be rigidly separated. Yeah, this happened for sure. It was I an would experience. I keep this one open.
0: Yeah, it did reinforce her kind of inherent uh, bias toward not separating poetry
1: and fiction. Sure, B looks pretty good. Yeah, I, I mean – Maybe this is something where it's true, but it's not the primary purpose. There is some greater purpose here, but I would keep this open because it seems like this describes pretty well yeah. what's happening. Yeah. So, C, indicate that Dove's strengths as a writer deri- derive in large part from the international character of her academic background. Uh, it, I don't like the in large part here. Maybe she got some skills from her international character, but...
0: It also didn't say that. I mean, it just, it never said that that the international experience was relevant to her strengths as a writer. I mean, she went to yeah. Germany. See, is almost like an answer that you would pick if you didn't actually read the passage. Sure. Right? Why, why yeah. did she go to Germany? Oh, to indicate that she has an international blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. That's a totally reasonable answer if you did not read the passage. <laughs> right? It, notice yeah. that it's not related at all to the main point of the passage. Yeah. Notice how yeah. B is like talking about the main idea of the passage, which was there's this rift and it shouldn't be there. And yeah. C is just like, Oh yeah. Germany international pick it, miss it, move on. You know? Yeah. That's the kind of answer that pe- people pick that just like when you're going way too fast, C-, C is just like really a pretty bad answer. I think.
1: Yeah. Okay. D D present an illuminating biographical detail about Dove, in an effort to enhance the human interest appeal of the passage. Okay, so the first part of this actually I thought was okay. Yeah. Present an illuminating biographical detail? Yes, that is doing that. But in an effort? In other words, to in, for the purpose of enhancing the human interest appeal of the passage? I uh, Maybe? like, But wh- we have no clue that, that this author felt the need to en- enhance the human interest appeal of the passage. And if it would
0: have been about like some charming anecdote of, you know, being in a German beer hall or something, right? <laughs> like, then. Oh, yeah. The experience itself wasn't that even interesting. No, it was just she went there and everybody was blending things. So that's. I'm, I wasn't particularly human interested. <laughs> um, yeah, we. No. I mean, we have already read B, which is really good. So I think we could cross D out. Yeah.
1: So it's easier to get rid of stuff. Yeah. E, indicate that what Dove believes to be the origin of her opposition to the separation of fiction and poetry in the U.S. Never mentioned that this was the origin. Uh, In fact, it suggested the opposite, right? If she had thought from a young age that uh, there was no reason to separate them, then the origin would have been a lot earlier in her life
0: yeah, um, she had grown up reading and loving both fiction and poetry, unaware of any purported danger lurking in attempts to mix the two. Later, she goes to Germany and she sees this happening there, but it's not that that's blew her mind, and that's the first time she ever saw that. I mean, I think she was naturally just blending these two from the get-go. My guess is that that's what people pick when they miss it. They probably pick e. I think it's the mm. second best answer. Mm. you know, if it said, yeah. um, Instead of the origin, if it said like part of the origin or something like that yeah, know?
1: it'd be a lot more tempting or yeah. part of the motivation or yeah, yeah yeah. Cool so B, so B seven it can be inferred from the passage that the author would be most likely to believe which one of the following. Now this is one where I'm thinking to myself broadly, what does the author believe? But that's like all I feel that I can predict because it didn't give us anything specific in the question itself. So I'm just thinking, well, the author thinks Stubb is awesome. The author thinks that the rift is bad and that the rift is going away. And that's a good thing. Now it's like the answers. Would you yeah. do something similar? Right. It, to me,
0: this is just a must-be-true question. I think this this question traps a lot of higher-performing students. I, especially people who come to me who are like scoring one seventy, um, they'll miss this question a lot because they think they need to pick something that was like um, hidden, you know, something that was not explicitly stated. They think they have to infer something. Um, yeah. It can be inferred. Really, just means which one must be true. Yeah. Uh, furthermore, when it says the author would be most likely to believe, that really seems like it's this invitation to speculate, right? It, it's like, oh yeah, we want you to go inside the author's head now and pick the next thing that the author might say. That's absolutely not what this question is about. This question is about which one did the author say? R- remember, they are testing your reading comprehension. They're not testing your ability to, you know, be like Karnak on the Johnny Carson show. And uh, there's a timely reference for everybody. Um, You know, they're not, they're not, they're really not looking for you to um, speculate and predict the future. They, they gave you evidence for one of these five answer choices. And that's all we really need to do here is find the one that we have reason on the page to believe the author believes it's basically boil down number seven. I think you're going to have, uh, you make a lot less mistakes if at least on a first time through the answer choices, you just treat this as if it says which one of the following must be true according to the author.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. According, according to the author is key because it might be, you know, what someone else thinks, but this is according to the author. So it's, yeah. A. Each of Dove's works can be classified as either primarily poetry or primarily fiction, even though it may, may contain elements of both. I feel like this is something that is probably true. I'm a little hesitant about the word primarily primarily because that's, that's sort of a strong word, and so... I would probably keep this open, but also be open to other answers.
0: Yeah. I don't like that it says each of Dove's works. Ooh,
1: that's true. It's another strong word. Means that's all.
0: Like it applies to every single one of Dove's works in the entire world. Um, so that would that would make me skeptical of a, I don't think I'm skeptical of it enough to really eliminate it because the passage did, I remember, talk about Dove's poetry and separately talk about Dove's fiction. Yeah. So um, even though Dove is pretty freely blending, I think the author uh, said that she is doing poetry that contains elements of fiction and Dove is also doing fiction that contains elements of poetry. So I do think that the author is, is um, categorizing um, into those two genres. Yeah. So I don't hate A. I'm skeptical, but I don't hate it.
1: Yeah. All right. So A with a chip on our shoulder. Let's go to B. The aesthetic value of lyric narrative resides in its representation of a sequence of events rather than its ability to evoke inner states. What? Its its value relies rely, resides in one thing and not the other? I, I don't remember a discussion of this.
0: I do not – I just don't even remember them talking about aesthetic value. Period. Yeah. You know where? Yeah. What is that? What it was about? I thought it was about the the separating the two genres or the blending of the two genres. I don't remember it saying here's where aesthetic value
1: comes from. Yeah.
0: I just don't. I don't like it.
1: Nope. B's out. Okay. C. The way in which Dove blends genres in her writing is without precedent in U.S. writing. Mm-hmm. That's pretty strong. Never happened before. I think it's happened before, but people didn't like it. And if it never happened, then people wouldn't have something to dislike. <laughs> yeah, and again,
0: it's like it, it, the passage is not Dove is the greatest of all time and she's so important. It was Dove is an example. Yeah. of people who are doing this and the author just did not say dove is the very first one ever in the whole history of u.s writing to do this so c is just extremely speculative yeah if you came in if you if you were like t- if you told your boss you know oh yeah dove she's the first one to do this <laughs> that would be incorrect you know you would be uh representing something that was not
1: actually in the passage that you read yeah okay c's out all right d narrative that uses lyrical language is generally aesthetically superior to pure lyric poetry this whole like comparison too. this is just like b right aesthetically superior no no author never said which one is better or
0: anything like that the author is happy that the rift is closing but did not say that uh, yeah i mean d so weird just saying that the so this is fiction using poetic poetic language is generally that's really too strong aesthetically mm-hmm. superior to the pure lyric poetry no the, the author likes both
1: yeah okay e writers who successfully crossed the generic boundary between poetry and fiction often try their hand at genres such as drama as well Purely speculative,
0: did not say that in the passage.
1: Never remember the author talking about this drama stuff.
0: Yeah, that's the one that maybe you pick if you sort of misinterpret the question, right? If you're like, oh, what's the next thing that the author's going to say? Huh, yeah, because people, yeah, I get it. Once they start blending, then they go Mm -hmm. nuts and they start blending everything, right? I bet that's what the author's going to say next. That's not what they're testing. They're testing what was on the page what did what did you read <laughs> that's that's all they're testing here so it is not e i guess we hated b c d and e
1: yeah so looking back at a i do think a's weakness is this word each and these words primarily because each means all so that means Every single one of Dove's works can be classified as either primarily poetry or primarily fiction, even though it may contain elements of both. I don't feel like the passage ever talked about any other kinds of writing that Dove does. So is it true that each of her works can be classified as either poetry or fiction? I don't know, but it's the only one that's remotely on point and is discussed in the fourth paragraph. Yeah, I mean, in the
0: fourth paragraph, it goes on and on about her poetry, and then on and on about her fiction. It's just, it's just the best answer, you know. We, we don't, we have reason to really conclusively eliminate B, C, D, and E. A is at least on target. The author was categorizing Dove's works into a poetry category and a fiction category. It's, it's, it's the. Um, we don't want to go out on a limb, right? Like we want to be conservative here and mm-hmm. even though we don't perfectly love A, it's less speculative than B, C, D, and E.
1: Yeah, so we can pick A. Cool. So, 8. If the if this passage had been excerpted from a larger, uh, sorry, from a longer text, which one of the following predictions about the near future of US literature would be most likely to, to appear in that text? Well, what would the author predict about the near future of U.S. literature? What do you think? Um, well, what
0: did the author say is happening? The author said, again, main point of the passage, uh, the rift is closing and that's a good thing. Yeah. So that's all I'm looking. I mean, I'm looking for. It's again, man, they keep asking you this question of like, hey, what's the next thing? Mm-hmm. But that's not that's not what it's about. It's about what what was in the what, what did you just read? A I think eight is almost like you know another hidden main point
1: question. It's just like
0: what's going on? What why is this important? Oh well, the rift is closing.
1: Yeah, the it says in the near future. So my guess is okay, it's closing. So it won't be closed all the way, but maybe it will be. More closed than what it was before. There'll be more people like Rita Dove. That would be my thought. Yeah, I could, I could imagine um,
0: a wrong answer that might overstate it. Mm-hmm. Like all writers will fuse the two genres, <laughs> right? That would be wrong because that's that's yeah. like, whoa, hold on, you know, not so fast. The rift is closing. There are people that are bridging the gap. That's a good thing. Maybe we can expect that that'll become more common but that doesn't mean that it's going to like take over the world.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, answer choice A, the number of writers who write both poetry and fiction will probably continue to grow. Oh, that's a soft answer. I I would keep this one open.
0: And by soft, you mean good because this is essentially a must be true question and we like safe, boring, obvious, conservatively stated answer choices for this type of question um yeah was one word there that you love right
1: yes the the word probably i mean i could even see this answer being correct if you took that out the number of writers who write both poetry and fiction will continue to grow i mean the author was pretty optimistic that this stuff was changing so i could see the author saying something as bold as that but they add in this word probably and it's like yes no doubt
0: yeah that's like gold-plated when they add that probably in there for a must-be-true question it's like oh sure just let's soften it you know it'd be even better if it said maybe
1: yeah you know might. or may
0: yeah may. <laughs> yeah fiction may continue to grow that would be even better will probably okay good that's a it's a nice
1: softener and we like soft answers for must-be-true questions sure so b because uh keeping a open b because of the increased interest in mixed genres the small market for pure lyric poetry will likely shrink even further oof i mean do we know the size of market for pure lyric poetry maybe this is an expanding pie and everybody benefits i, I this is this is bizarre to me yeah for all
0: we know as the genres mix the yeah the pie might grow right exactly maybe the maybe this is good for both fiction and poetry and the kinds of fiction and poetry that are kind of blended and merged um we just don't we don't know it never mentioned how big the market is for pure lyric poetry and whether that was growing or shrinking we don't know
1: yeah c narrative poetry will probably come to be regarded as a subgenre of fiction (laughs) I like that. Uh, I I don't like that in terms of a, is a good answer. I just think it's a it's a funny prediction.
0: Totally speculative. It, just it it just didn't say that. I mean it it never talked about subgenres. That was never even a thing. What's a subgenre? Yeah. Is that a thing? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> um,
1: so I can't pick C then. No. D. There will probably be a rise in specialization among writers in university writing programs. Wait a sec. This is the opposite, right? Yeah. They already do specialize.
0: If it said fall, that would be good. So yeah. I think D is exactly backward,
1: so that's out. Yep. E. Writers who continue to work exclusively in poetry or fiction will likely lose their audiences. That's another extreme one. That's the one you kind of said, I think. Like, it's, it's over... For the other people, yeah, uh huh. It's
0: it's overstating it. It's overstepping it. And I just I really want to draw people's attention here to both number seven and number eight. The way they're phrasing these questions makes it look like they want you to go the next step, but they that they don't ever want you to go the next step on these types of questions. They want you to pick uh, an answer that is firmly rooted in evidence. And they want you to pick an answer that is conservatively, as much as possible. They want it to be conservatively stated and does not overstep. The wrong answers tend to be overstepping or misstating. The right mm-hmm. answers tend to be the ones that you have strong evidentiary support from the passage. I I almost think Ben. I'm not sure because you know we don't know what's going on behind the uh, curtain at the LSAC, but it's it strikes me that they. They might not quite know what effect those question stems are having, because um, it 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 just <laughs> why why would they do that? Why would they like make it look like they want you to pick a speculative answer when in fact they don't?
1: Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. I don't know. So I, I'm I'm thinking that they are getting a little flowery with their question stems, and that what they really should be doing is just saying which one of the following must be true.
1: Yeah. I agree. I think that sometimes they they soften these question stems maybe to protect themselves from claims of like, well, this didn't have to one hundred percent be true, and they're like, well, I didn't say that. I just said most likely. So, huh. you know. Yeah,
0: it's just, it's. It, I mean, it's just a weird trap question stem. I've I've like blown a million one seventy scorers minds by by showing them this because they they really do like they. It's it's like. The, the higher you are scoring, the more likely it is that you will sometimes miss one of these um, questions of this type because you think you're supposed to, you know, you're, you're smart and you're used to figuring things out and you're used to being able to predict where things are going to go next. And so because they look like they've given you the invitation to speculate, then you pick a speculative answer and now you've missed it. Um, mm-hmm. But through some prep and through some practice, and now that you've heard me, go on and on about this for 20 minutes, um, hopefully you'll stop missing these types of questions because there really (laughs) are just must-be-true questions.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Awesome, well, we did it, that just happened. Yeah, Yeah. Donezos. I would love to know what listeners think about that discussion. Uh, We have three more reading comprehension passages left in the June 2007 LSAT. I don't think we'll probably do a full reading comprehension passage next episode. Next episode, what do you think? We'll get back to... We could do one of the games, or we could just get back to the... uh, We have a whole other section of logical
1: reasoning to work on, right? Yeah, we could also just, like... It's kind of a long process. I don't know how long this episode's going to be, but it would be nice to just sort of... Get them all done too, in order. It would make sense. But I don't know, whatever. It depends on what people say. Hey, if you guys like this, then we'll do more of it. If you're like shut up and go back to logical reasoning or just <laughs> Shut up <stop>. generally. <laughs> shut up generally and close the Thinking Outside podcast. I don't even know why I'm listening to you still. You know, all the all that feedback is, is useful. I don't know that we'll stop, but
0: Yeah, we we work for you. So please uh, don't be a stranger. Um, you can reach me directly Nathan at FoxLSAT.com. Ben is Ben at StrategyPrep.com. You can get both of us if you email help at thinkingLSAT.com. You can follow uh, at ThinkingLSAT on Twitter. You can follow me at NFox. Uh, ben, I believe, is at StrategyPrep, but doesn't really use Twitter, which <laughs> I don't really blame you for. Um, if you want to learn every, if you want to instantly learn anytime someone dies, Twitter, that Twitter's great for that, which is actually kind of depressing. Wait, what? Why? It's just weird, man. I don't get it. Like one thing that people do, and I'm going to start unfollowing people who do this. People, um, they love to like express their, um, sympathies, you know, or they, it's like they love to just say how great someone was. And I get it that they're, they're like trying to honor that person. But Mm -hmm. the cumulative effect of that is that like every time you look at Twitter, then you learn about someone who died. Oh, okay. So it just gets a little, I don't know, it's like for the same reason that I don't ever turn on the news, you know, I've never watched the news because I just don't, yes, I know something got blown up today. I know. I I don't, (laughs) there's 7 billion people in the world, you know, many, many people died today. Yeah. And I just if you if you get tuned into that, then it's just like, oh, my God, it's so easy to think that the world is this like dark, scary place. So anyway, I sort of tend to just tune out on that. And um, if you make a lot of stupid jokes, I would love to follow you on Twitter because that's what I want. (laughs) I want some like entertainment Um, or, you know, news and stuff here and there is interesting. But like, I just don't need you to tell me how important Prince was to you uh you know yes. it's like I, I get it i get it he died he was great that's awesome he meant a lot to you that's awesome but i just don't need everybody's death all the time <laughs> okay so no tweeting death on twitter that's what i say i'm never gonna recognize anyone's death ever on twitter that's my that's my um it's my pact i'm making with my followers cool cool <laughs> uh <laughs> Anything else? I don't know. What else is there? I think that is good. I think we gave them at least their money's worth on today's episode.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Probably so.
0: You know, no one has ever asked for a refund. Maybe
1: not their time's worth, but their money's (laughs) worth for sure.
0: Um, Please do, though. Tell us how how you liked the uh, reading comprehension discussion, because we can certainly do uh, more of that on a future episode if you found it helpful. Yeah. All right, Ben, enjoy summer. I guess you've got uh, classes going now or starting soon. Mine are starting really soon. Yeah, this Saturday. Mm -hmm. This Saturday. Same here. Yep, I'm starting this Saturday in San Francisco, and I'm starting, uh, that's going to be weekend courses. I'll be like every third weekend, I'll be teaching in San Francisco. And then um, the weeknight classes, my very first weeknight classes are starting uh, this coming Tuesday in beautiful downtown Los Angeles, California downtown la at the la athletic club which is a super nice um spot so i'm really excited about that
1: yeah that's exciting
0: yeah yeah good times thanks for listening everybody and we will be back at you soon goodbye